Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling Resting in the Midst of Drama. I think we all know what drama is. I don't care if you turn to the north, the south, the east, or the west, you'll bump into drama. It's just a fact of life. Many believers do not know how to rest in the midst of dramatic situations and events. What I want you to see through this message is that as we develop an accurate image of our spiritual identity in Christ, we will not be moved by drama. You see, the Bible says it's in Christ that we live and we move and we have our being. It didn't say it's in drama that we live and we move and we have our being. It's in Christ that we live and move and have our being. This past week, Sarah brought two of the grandchildren to the home. And I was getting ready for work, so Tato, our nine-year-old, and uh, Olivia, his little sister, were in the living room. And Valerie was being that gracious grandmother. And she set up the flannel board. They used to use those in Sunday school when we were kids. You'd have that sticky board where you put all your characters on as you told Bible stories. So she took Tato over to the flannel graph. When we ordered the flannel graph, it came with several backdrops, okay? You've got the mountain scene for, I suppose, when you want to tell stories like the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the temple scene when you want to talk about Jesus, a story about him teaching in the temple. And you've got the green pastures when you want to talk about the Lord is my shepherd. So you've got all these different backdrops, if you will. The one she had on the board that day was the one of the Sea of Galilee. And so as Valerie picked up this stack full of all these little images, she began to say, there's the sun. And then she picked up a rainbow and she laid that up there and said, there's the rainbow. And the angels, there were like a little choir of angels and stuck those up in the sky. The next thing she picked up was this man that was sleeping. And so Valerie laid that out there. She said, there's a man sleeping. And Tato goes, on the ocean? <laughs> he said, on the ocean? So he was just really tracking with her. But that just didn't register that a man would be sleeping on the ocean. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Jesus knew how to rest even in the midst of drama. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27, these words. Then he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. Suddenly a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Do you hear the drama? We're going to drown. He replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? You know what occurred to me this morning when I was looking at that? Is Jesus hadn't even gotten out of his sleeping position yet. Because then the Bible says, then he got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. We just sang about that in Sarah's song this morning when it said the waves and the winds still know his name. And I'm telling you something, when you use his name and you stand in your position of righteousness and you stand in your position of authority, I want to tell you something, you can use that name and the waves and the winds will listen to you as well. If I was to ask you what was the miracle in this story, what would you say? You know what most believers would say? The miracle was that the wind and the waves obeyed Jesus. That's a pretty cool miracle. It really is. I mean, when's the last time you did something like that? 
I mean, I have been out and about, and it's been raining, and I've said, God, I really don't want to get out of this car and get all wet when I run into this place. You ever done that? God, can you just shut the rain off for a second? And you know what? I have seen situations like that where he did that. And I go, really? I wasn't really kidding, God, but that's awesome. The greater miracle was the fact that Jesus was resting in the midst of drama. That is a great miracle. That is a great testimony. You see, Jesus understood who he was and who he is. He understood his father. And when you understand your father, and that's really what this ministry has always been about, is helping us to see our true righteousness in Christ. Helping us see the true picture of who our father is. Because so often in the church, we've painted the wrong image of our daddy. And it's hard to get rid of that. Jesus was resting in the midst of drama. Drama from not only the wind and the waves, but drama from the disciples. Can you imagine what it sounded like in that boat? They're not being quiet. I mean, I can only hear Peter. He's probably the one orchestrating everything. All right, six of you get over on that side of the boat. The other six get over there so we don't capsize. Let's balance this thing out. Drama. Jesus was trying to teach his disciples how to rest, even in the midst of drama. You know what? The church spends too much time, I believe, rebuking in the midst of drama when they ought to learn how to rest in the midst of drama. Jesus, if he would have been awake in that boat, he would not have rebuked the wind and the waves, really. Because there's another story where the disciples are in the boat by themselves, and there is a storm going on, as bad as this one. And Jesus came walking out on the water in that particular one. (laughs) Jesus just said, you know what? This would be a good night to go for a stroll. Jesus must have just been so cool walking out on that water. He wasn't afraid of that kind of stuff. He knew he had authority over that. Jesus only rebuked the wind and the waves because of the disciples, for the disciples. Because he cares about you, he cares about me. He knew they were scared. He knew they were afraid. And so he rebuked it for that sake. There was no real source of danger. You're in no source of danger when Jesus is in your boat. Come on, are you kidding me? Jesus is in your boat and you really think it's going to go down? When I say resting in the midst of drama, I'm talking about not allowing dramas that we encounter in life to jerk us out of our inheritance of rest. Our inheritance is rest. And dramas come along to try to change things like that. They're orchestrated by the enemy. Dramatic events should not steal our peace. Drama should not cause us to walk in unforgiveness and bitterness. Drama should not cause us to be insensitive and to turn off the cries of the hungry and the hurting and the harassed and the lost people of this world. We live in a world that has been both paralyzed and polarized with drama. The same world is malnourished with the truths that bring rest. Truths like the finished work of the cross. Truths like, I'm forever forgiven. Truths like, I am dead to sin, dead to the law, dead to my first husband, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Truths like, he has separated my sins as far as the east is from the west. Truths like, he has cast my sins into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be brought up again. Truths like, the old covenant has been rendered inoperative and obsolete. 
truths like I don't have to perform to please my heavenly Father, truths like my sins and my lawless deeds, he said he will remember no more. Truths that I am justified by faith and declared righteous apart from works. Truths that his mercies are new every single day. Truths that he is my shield and my buckler. And I could go on. And when I started looking at some of these things, I thought, God, I could just sing that song for an hour. I could sing that song all day long, really, that these wonderful truths of God are abounding. You see, friends, drama has a way of making us forget about the very truths that bring rest to our souls. When the Israelites were led into the promised land, the Bible says they worship God with all their heart. Joshua took them in there. They worshiped the Lord with all their heart. But the Bible says there came a day, there came a generation is what it says, where they neither knew God nor the miracles that he had done. It's healthy to talk about the things of the Lord. It's healthy to be reminded. Listen, I'm reminded 21 years ago this day. It was 21 years ago today that I got on my knees and said, Jesus, come into my heart. And I love thinking about that from time to time because it was so awesome. As a result when we don't concentrate on these wonderful truths of Jesus and the Lord, you know what we do? We default back into a system of works and a system of performance in an effort to make us feel good and to validate our identity. And I'm going to tell you something, that is a trap by the enemy. You make yourself feel good. You dial yourself up. You make yourself feel good spiritually, emotionally, whatever it may be. Listen, my feelings are triggered by the Lord's goodness, not mine. The author of the book of James asks a poignant question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That's a good question, isn't it? If you were to ask a thousand people that question, you'd get 700 different answers. But I'm so glad it wasn't a fill in the blank. He said, I'm going to answer the question for you. He says, what is it that causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, here's what it is. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. You see, we don't want to fight. We don't have any, any argument, no quarrels, as long as we get everything we want. It goes our way, right? We don't have any problem with that. But the moment it doesn't go your way, let's just be honest, okay? I don't care how spiritual you are, okay? Even me. There's times when Valerie does something a different way. And I can feel that on the inside. Do you, do you know what I'm talking Is anybody with me? Not against her, but just... Oh, Lord, deliver me from religion, I'm telling you. Is everybody on the same page? All right, good. He says, you want something, but you don't get it. That's what causes drama. I believe that we have a responsibility to our children to train their taste buds toward healthy wants and biblical desires. That's what the Lord said to me. You have a responsibility. Lilia, you'll have that responsibility coming up very, very shortly. A responsibility to set your child's taste buds on the things of the Lord. Shape them early in life, friends. It's a lot harder as you get older. Shape them early in life. We've gotten our country into the condition that it's in is because simply parents have not taken responsibility to teach their children about the things of God, about His love, and about His grace. Parents have an awesome responsibility to contour their children's pliable hearts. That's what Psalm 37 verse 4 talks about. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and He'll give you the desires of your heart. It literally means, the word delight, means make yourself pliable. A child's heart is pliable. You see, you can take a little tree, and when it's small, you can stake it, and you can make that tree grow straight. But let the tree get old one time. Let it get 40, 50 years old. You ain't pulling it. You're going to break it. So we have a responsibility to train our children and set their little taste buds 
uh, shape them in the direction of God's grace. I want to say this. When I look at Jason and Sarah and Steve and Heather, when I look at their children, the three children that each of them have, I see children that I can tell have been influenced by the love and the grace of the Lord. You guys have modeled true Christianity for these children. And I want to tell you something. Your children will not be caught in drama. They will not be caught in that web of drama because you've taken responsibility to bring them up in the love and the grace of God. And you've modeled it. It wasn't too long ago, Tato, our oldest grandson from Sarah and Jason, wanted to buy something. I don't know, he had 50 or $60 in his piggy bank, which is a lot of money probably for a kid. And his mama began to talk to him about maybe giving to the Lord as well. And, you know, when you empty a piggy bank, everything comes out, you know, wadded up dollars and fives. And I don't know, I think there was only maybe one 20 in there or something like that, one or two 20s. But anyway, she began to say, you know, teach him about giving to the Lord as well. And so she said, so what do you want to give? And it wasn't a nickel or dime, and it wasn't even a dollar bill. That little nine-year-old boy said, I want to give the 20. And his mom said, well, wait a second now. <laughs> Son, that's a lot of money. Now, are you sure you want to give that much money? You don't have to give that much money. You know what the little boy said? He said, Mom, I want to give this because I want to see people saved. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from Cartoon Network. It comes from sitting under the grace of of God, sitting under the love of God, and watching that be modeled. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, so that when he is old, he shall not depart from it. If you look at the front cover of any major magazine, you'll find drama. You listen to five minutes of the presidential election coverage, you'll find drama. You look in any soap opera, you look at any talk show, you look at any sitcom, you'll find drama. I was sharing the drama epidemic. I was bouncing it off a guy. That's what preachers do, you know. We, we start talking our sermons out to other people as we go, and then just suddenly, oh, that's what I'm supposed to preach. That's the way it really usually works for us, doesn't it? And so I was in the lunchroom last week, and I was talking to a colleague, and I was just kind of bouncing off the systemic epidemic that we have in this country of, of all this drama, and the guy just wasn't buying it. Just wasn't buying it. wanted to be argumentative about it. What I think is hilarious about God is, the guy sits down next to me, picks up the newspaper, and across the top of the newspaper, the headlines read, I'm not kidding you, because he, he looked at me and he said, well, I'll be. <laughs> you know what it said? Across there in bold letters, a sense of panic. That was the headlines of the newspaper. He didn't say it, but I know he wanted to say, I guess you're right about this. Headlines like that are nothing more than a booster shot of drama, and it injects fear in the man. We need to get our headlines from the Word of God, not the Wall Street Journal. I was babysitting the grandkids, Sarah and Jason's kids, a couple of Friday nights ago, and I had them all sitting on the couch. Mila was right there, Livio was right there, Tato was right there. And we were watching a little bit of television, and finally I picked up my phone. I wanted to show them a video that I made of Keith when he was about five years old. And so we watched that video. It's so cute. And then... We started looking at pictures of the family, of course. I came to the friend of mine who passed away last December, my friend, Brother Doug. He's a chocolate man, just like Mila. It grabbed her attention. She said, who's that? I said, well, that's my friend, Doug. I said, he died last uh, December, Mila. You know what she said to me? I'm not kidding you. She looked at me, she said, Bumpa, don't you ever talk to me ever again about dying. <laughs> She says, it gives me bad dreams. I said, well, I, I really didn't know. 
I'm telling you, you can be so secure in the Lord, so secure in your walk with Christ, that the drama, the biggest drama that we face in life, which is death, will not even bother you. Fear will not creep in. I understand it when you're a little child. I didn't like it then either. I know of one place, one place that we can go where we can escape all drama. It's a place the Bible says that the wicked cease from troubling and the weary at rest. Do <laughs> you know where that place is at? It's a place called heaven. The passionate desire of Jesus' heart is that we would enter into his rest. We find that rest in Hebrews chapter 4, and we will go there in just a little bit. When I say rest, I'm not talking about sleeping. I'm talking about the rest in your heart, where your emotions settle down, where you're not driven and moved all over the place by drama. In the 1970s, in the 1980s, and in the 1990s, I worked for an electronics company. And one day, a man and his wife came carrying their VCR in. They said, this VCR you sold us suddenly quit working. They said, every time we put a cassette in there, it ejects it out. We try to put it in, it ejects it out. Zipped a couple of screws, it took the lid off of that VCR. We knew what the problem was right there. There was their little toddler sandwich laying right inside that VCR. You see, what the kid got in the habit of doing is watching mom and daddy walk over there and stick a little rectangular black thing and, and watch it disappear. How cool is that? And so when he was eating his sandwich, he thought, well, I'm done with this thing. I'll just stick my sandwich in there and watch it disappear. And it did. The VCR was not the problem. The culprit was the sandwich. Right? And so as I began to think about God, what is the culprit? What is or what are the culprits? that keeps so many believers in unrest. I can tell when I move over into unrest. You'll know. They are the fraternal twins of identity and covenant. In other words, when you don't understand your identity and you don't understand the covenant, and that's why we spend time talking about the covenant in this church, the old covenant, the new covenant. Religion and performance will put you on a hamster wheel of performance that never stops. The man is not the culprit it's what's been put in the man that is the culprit. For the unbeliever, it is his sin. But for the believer, it's just simply wrong programming. The mental institutions are filled with people that have been hyper-stimulated. They have been genetically modified, if you will, with fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation. I'll bet you if you were to go in there and you were able to assess that, you would find that most of the people in there, it wasn't just some physical thing, it's fear, guilt, shame and condemnation that drove them there. And they simply are there because they didn't know how to make it leave. In other words, the enemy stuck a sandwich in their VCR and life quit playing. Life just suddenly stopped. Life said, hit the eject button. And everything grew quiet. Drama is intended by the enemy to strip believers of their rest. It does this by injecting fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation into us. So, because I know drama's not going anywhere, and I'm not going anywhere, then that means I need to learn how to rest in the midst of drama. This is the question I ask the Lord. Lord, is it possible to live a life without being infected with fear? Fear is a big one. You know, I always growing up had a fear of getting left behind. I watched those end of the world movies, man, I just, I had a fear of getting left behind. Do you know how many people are walking in that fear today, even believers? Because they base it based upon how good have I been today. 
I love what Paul White asked his daddy when he was a little boy, because his daddy's a minister. He said, Daddy, when you give the altar call and people are walking down to the altar, he said, I have a question for you. What if Jesus came right then as they're in their way down to the altar? Now, would they still go to heaven? Because they haven't got to the altar yet, Daddy. His daddy looked at him and said, Son, God knows our heart. And the Bible says, if our hearts fail us, Jesus is greater than our hearts. He is greater than our hearts. People are afraid of shame. In fact, they'll even say sometimes, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I'm really getting to the point where I go, really? <laughs> really? Because I'm not. Okay, it doesn't mean I do everything perfect, but when I blow it, I don't need to walk around in shame. I can just humbly say, listen, you're right. I, I was wrong. I, I said something wrong. I did something wrong. I get it. But I don't have to walk around in shame. So the question is, is it possible to live life without fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation? The answer is absolutely yes. Jesus did it. Jesus lived it. If he did it and he lived it, we can do it too. So the question becomes this. What was Jesus' secret to living without fear? I don't believe there was one day in Jesus' life that he was afraid. I don't believe there was one day that he felt guilty or ashamed, or condemned. I don't believe he ever felt like that emotionally. And it's really not a secret. He doesn't have any secrets that he's keeping from us. He wants to share everything with us. Simply put, I said it earlier, Jesus understood his identity. He understood his identity. You and I will never understand identity until we understand covenant. When you get covenant, you'll get identity. When you get that, you'll get life. Fear, guilt, shame, condemnation, all those things will have to leave. Understanding our identity will cause us to rest even in the midst of drama. Let me talk just a second about this Old Covenant, New Covenant thing. The Old Covenant was a do good, get good, do bad, get beat covenant. We are not under that covenant anymore. It was not the covenant God really wanted to give the Israelites, but they insisted. And so they got what they asked for. They told Moses, we don't even want to talk to God. You go talk to him for us. And you let us know what he says. And he comes back and he tells them, here's Ten Commandments, boys. And they're like, everything he wrote on those things, everything he said, we can do those things. Moses got so mad he threw the things down. I mean, it wasn't just the golden calf. I think it was just their total attitude. <laughs> Had to go back up on the mountain for 40 days, fasting again, let God write some more commandments out there. You see, here's what I felt the Lord say to me. Having served for hundreds of years as Egyptian slaves, they walked into the desert with a slave mentality, even though God had set them completely free. That's where a lot of believers are at. Hundreds of years of Christianity, but we still have a servant or a slave mentality. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. I was in the post office last week mailing some things. I had a lot of things to mail, and each thing I was mailing required two stamps. And about halfway through, it occurred to me, God, I'm so thankful for these self-adhesive stamps. You see, because I remember the day where you had to lick them. And so I spoke to the lady who worked at the post office across from me. I said, can I ask you a question? I said, how long have we had the self-adhesive stamps? And she said, well, I'm not really sure. She asked the lady next to her, and they didn't know exactly. Oh, it's been a lot of years 
I said, let me ask you a question. Do you have any stamps? I don't care what size, what color, what shape, what's on them. I don't care how much they cost. Do you have any stamps that are the licking and sticking kind? Oh, no, we don't have any stamps like that anymore. Hey, listen, I'll tell you what. You haven't lived until you know what S&H green stamps are. Do you remember S&H green stamps? You're not old enough, are you? Man, every time you went to the grocery store and you bought groceries, depending on how much you bought, you'd get a bunch of these little green stamps. And then they would give you these books. And you had to lick these green stamps and put them in the book. And when you filled your book up, you could trade these books in for things, you know, products and stuff, you know. And my mom believed in S&H green stamps, and she'd have a whole bunch of them. And she'd look at me, and she'd say, okay, son, go ahead and put those S&H green stamps. I can still remember the taste of S&H green stamps. Sarah, did you ever lick any S&H green stamps? I can still remember the taste of them. And if you, if you shopped enough and bought enough groceries, you'd get enough where you could, you had one big set of them where you didn't have to lick each individual one. You'd just get your tongue as wet as you could get it, and you stick it out like Gene Simmons from Kiss and lick that whole back of that green stamp right there and plaster it in the book. That was S&H green stamps. So I said to lady, she said, no, we don't have anything that uh, you have to lick and stick anymore. And instantly the Holy Spirit quickened it in my heart. And he said, I want you to see something here. He said, I want you to picture that the stamp that you used to have to lick is like the old covenant. The self-adhesive stamp is like the new covenant. He said, my body is still taking the stamps of today and thinking they still got to lick them. Let's stick them on the envelope. How ridiculous is that? We don't have to do that anymore. Jesus already licked the stamp. He already made it self-adhesive. Remember the last time I preached when it said, we, are, we that are joined to the Lord are one spirit, and that word joined means glued? <laughs> He's already the glue on the stamp. You know, the popcorn is sitting on the table this morning. I popped it personally at home. It's underneath all those cookies. And as I was popping that popcorn, I thought, God, what if you tried to do this with no lid? I'm serious. It, it crossed my mind. I don't know if it was just me thinking that way or the Holy Spirit was trying to teach me something. You know what? That's what it's like when you a new believer, a new covenant believer, new covenant, Jesus, and we're trying to live a new covenant life based on old covenant principles that don't work. It's like popping popcorn with no lid on it. You know what it does? All it does is make a mess, and it keeps you busy. The old covenant, I mean, there were 613 laws. You were so busy, you didn't have time to do anything. You were always concentrating on, did I obey everything? Can you imagine what it looked like in your kitchen if you popped popcorn with no lid on it? Folks, we got to wake up to our identity, don't we? We sure do. Jesus understood his identity, and it began very early in life. In Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 32, we find these words. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, and in the Greek, it's Iesus. He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Where do you suppose the angel got the name? He got it from the Father. The angel wasn't the one that picked out the name. The father's the one that picked out the name for his son. He just happened to deliver it through the angel. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. You know, his name literally means one who hears. You know, that's what Christianity is. It's not one who does. It's just one who hears. And Simeon's been waiting a long time, hadn't he, baby? He'd been waiting a long time. There was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel or the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And then moved by the Spirit. I want you to see those words. Moved by the Spirit. Not moved by drama. Moved by the Spirit, it says. He went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, what he was saying there is he's saying, Lord, I've lived for this moment. This was the total sum of what I was looking for all my life. And now, Lord, if I'm done, I'm done. Let it be. He said, you may dismiss your servant in peace. He says, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Now, you see, this is what's happening to Jesus just as a baby. Skipping up to verse 39 and 40. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, I love this, and the grace of God was on him. I don't care how new you are in Christ, the grace of God is on you. Skipping up only nine verses. Now, listen, we're only moving up nine verses. We're still in chapter 2. You're going to find Jesus went through a growing spurt. Now he's 12 years old. He was just a baby. Now he's 12. And it says this, Every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, watch this, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. This is a hard thing to really get. Walk with me on this one for a second. They've got an entourage. They have a family. I mean, you're talking dozens, maybe a hundred people or more in their family. They're traveling together. That's how they did it back then. It was a safe way to do it, and family was involved with family back then. And so they left Jerusalem, heading back to Nazareth, which is 60 miles as the crow flies. So that means it's probably 70 miles the way they've got to walk. And the Bible says they traveled for a day. Listen, I understand if you have 27, 28 kids or something like that, you did a little inventory before you left and you kind of overlook one or you double counted one. I, I get that. But when all you have is one kid and he's not with you, and the Lord took me back and, and I was remembering when I was 16 years old. My daddy and my mom had split up very early in life and I was staying with my mama. Sometimes I'd go live with my daddy for a while and then I'd go live with my mom. I was like a ping pong match really growing up like this. This is how it all went. And we got wind that my daddy was up in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and we lived in Beloit. So we made a trip up there to see him. And with him was two of my other siblings, two of my other brothers, one younger, one older. And while I was there, 
I had this innate feeling that I need to be with my daddy. It just came over me. I didn't expect it. But I didn't know how to let mama down. And so my younger brother and I decided to go downtown for a while. And we went into some old pool hall. I mean, I didn't even know where I was at. First time I'd ever been there. I didn't have the heart to let my mom know I wasn't going back to Beloit with her. I figured if I just stayed there long enough, eventually she'd have to leave and leave without me, you know, kind of like they did Jesus. After one, two, three, four hours, God must just put some sort of GPS in moms. All of a sudden the door of that pool hall opens up and then walks mom. I'm like, really? Really, you know I'm here? And she said, son, what are you doing? My words were literally, I need to be with my father. I need to be with my daddy, mom. And it broke my mama's heart that day. And it broke my heart too. So I understand this traveling. I understand this getting separated thing. As you think about this story here, how could that happen? Let me just tell you quickly how that happened. Jesus was 12 years old. From birth till about 12 years of age, children would spend time with their mom. But when they were 12, you were considered literally an adult back then. And you would transition over and you would spend your time with daddy. Because he would begin to show you your trade and your craft and begin to give you the father's identity and the father's anointing and stuff like that. And so the Bible doesn't tell us, but the only thing that explains it is that Joseph thought he was with Mary and Mary thought, well, maybe he's back there with his daddy because the women walked out in front. The women and the children were always out in front when they traveled. The men always brought up the rear guard. And so it was a big enough family. He just thought he must be with mom. She thought he must be with daddy. But then there came time to camp that night. (laughs) Can you picture this? That Joseph walks up to Mary and, well, we've had a nice little walk today. They've walked all day long. Usually they would walk for 20 miles in a day. And then Joseph said, where's the the boy at? I haven't seen him all day. What do you mean? Wasn't he with you? No, he wasn't with me. Well, he must have been. He wasn't with me. And finally, they realized, okay, we got a problem on our hands here, okay? The Bible says this. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem. Very important scripture. It says, when they did not find him. I can only picture the tents were set up. And so they pulled back the flap and looked in Aunt Betty's tent or whatever. No, he ain't in here. (laughs) Then they went and looked in another tent. No, he's not in here. Then they went and looked in another church. I mean tent. No, he's not in here. Then they went and looked in another song. Uh, I meant tent. Nope, he's not in here. I want to tell you something. It sounds comical, but I want to tell you something. You can hear a sermon not even hear the name Jesus. You can sing a song and not see the name Jesus in it. And the Bible says, (laughs) they began looking for him among their relatives and friends, and when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And I felt the Holy Spirit say, son, that's where your ministry of grace came from. When you began to look into the mirror and you can say, and, and say on certain days, I can't seem to see Jesus. When you began to look at your friends and relatives and say, I'm not seeing Jesus, because we're all caught up in this legalism and law. It was always about works, do, 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 but not about, let me tell you about the altogether lovely one. They couldn't see Jesus. And it says they went back to Jerusalem. Now, they've traveled a day into the wilderness. 
Now they've got to travel a day back, right? If you go 20 miles, it takes you a day. It takes you 20 miles and a day to get back, right? Every time we come to over here, it's 74 miles over here. It's 74 miles back, okay? So it's a day to go there. It's a day to come back, and it took them three days to find them. How many is that all together? One plus one plus three is five. You can already see grace, can't you? Grace is looking for grace. But it says they went back to the city of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. And that's why it's so healthy for us to go back to our city of peace. You know, I'll tell you what, again, 21 years ago today, I gave my heart to Jesus. He became my city of peace that night. I mean, I never felt such peace in all my life. Peace just flooded my heart when Jesus walked into it that night. You know, the amazing thing that night that I gave my heart to Jesus, it was just me and Jesus. I didn't know anything about laws yet. I didn't know anything about rules yet. I didn't know about legalism. It was just Jesus and I. We just were on a love affair for a long time until I went into a church and I had only I stepped in there the first day and they said, we think you need to join this church. It was the very first time I visited the church and they said, we think you need to join the church. I said, okay, I'll become a member. I became a member that very same day. We think you need to start teaching the teens class. I'm not kidding you. It happened right away. I'm, uh, in my life. I mean, I had been a month old in Jesus. I said, we think you need to teach a teen class. I looked at the guy and I said, what do I know about teaching a teen class? I think I need to be taught. Finally, they sent the Sunday school superintendent. I wouldn't listen to him. They sent the pastor's wife. I wouldn't listen to her. Finally, after six months, I said, okay, bring on the teens. I'll teach them, you know. But we need to go back sometimes. You know, the Rich Mullins song, Sing Your Praise to the Lord, popped in my heart the other night. Sing your praise to the Lord. Come on, everybody, stand up and sing one more. Hallelujah, sing your praise to the Lord. I could never tell you how much good that it's going to do you just to sing anew the song your heart learned to sing when he first gave his life to you. You remember the song? That's what we got to go back to sometimes. It's just that go back to that newness in Christ when he first gave his heart to us. The Bible says when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then Jesus, that little 12-year-old boy, says, Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? That statement absolutely shouts from the rooftop identity. I can only imagine in the quietness of that moment, Mary looked at Joseph, and Joseph looked at Mary, and together they said, He knows. He knows. I was saving this. I was going to fit this in with the birds and the bees talk one day, but He knows. He knows who His Father is. I don't know what age He was when He, he discovered it. I don't think it was when He was just 12. I think He knew it when He was 4 or 5 or 6 or maybe the whole time. But He finally said, I know who my Father is. Didn't you know I need to be in my Father's house? When I came to the revelation several years ago that it was getting harder and harder to find Jesus among my relatives and even myself, I realized I needed to go back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is really just Christ. It's, he's a picture of the city of peace. He is the essence. That is the essence of the message of grace. The essence of the message of grace is looking for Jesus. I don't care if you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. That is the message of grace. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? When Jesus encountered the woman that was caught in adultery, he delivered that woman from fear, guilt, shame, and condemnation. And I love this. I heard the Holy Spirit say to me last night, did you notice he didn't put her in the witness protection plan? She had to go back into the same town that the men wanted to kill her from. 
Jesus wasn't going to stay there forever. That means he had to walk out of that town and leave the woman they wanted to stone. The only way that could have happened is her to say, I'm no longer afraid. In fact, I'm no longer guilty. I'm no longer ashamed either. And friends, because of that, I can no longer be condemned. Why? Because he gave her the gift of no condemnation that day when he said, neither do I condemn you. Now he said, now go and leave your life of sin. He would, notice he didn't say, go and obey the Ten Commandments now. What he said is, you can leave your life of sin. Grace is going to empower you to leave the life of sin. So, now we fast forward. He was 12. Now let's fast forward 18 years. There's been no identity crisis with Jesus all along this journey. Jesus still knows exactly who he is. He is the Son of the living God. And it says this, When Jesus was being baptized in the Jordan River, the heavens opened, and they heard the majestic voice of the Father say, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear the word of the Lord saying that to you today. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. There were several things that were communicated in what he said. First of all, he said, This is my beloved Son. I want to tell you, you're not just my Son. You're my beloved Son. And he said, In whom I am well pleased. Jesus had did no ministry up to this point in time. So we can't say, well, God was pleased with his son because he was performing for him. He had done no ministry. Hadn't healed anybody yet. Hadn't cast out any devils yet. Had done no ministry yet. John's revelation of the Lamb of God, when he looked at him, he literally said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You notice he said, he doesn't just say he puts away the sin of the world or he files it away. If you put something away, you can get it back out. If you file something away, you can go look for it again. The Bible says he takes away the sin of the world. Believing that our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, that is the beginning of rest. Understanding your sins have all been done away with. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, we find these words. He said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What was Jesus saying? He was saying, Do you have drama in your life? Come to me. Are you laboring? Are you tired? Come to me. I love how it says it in the Message Bible. He says, Are you tired? worn out, burned out on religion. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. He says, I'll show you how to take a real rest. He says, work with me and walk with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. What is his message? His message has always been about rest. 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 I'm not going to guarantee you a life without drama, but I can guarantee you a life of rest. But he said, in order to do that, you're going to have to understand you have been yoked to me. You and I are one together. In Psalm chapter 65, verses 3 through 8, it says this, When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength, 
who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the turmoil of their nations. In other words, it's saying that God himself is the one who dealt with that drama, all that turmoil, all that scary stuff. The whole earth is filled with awe at your wonders where morning dawns, where evening fades, you call forth songs of joy. I want to tell you something. I felt the Holy Spirit just say in my heart right now is if you'll just take and meditate on a song of joy, I want to tell you something. It will bring rest. You see, the way Jesus quieted storms is through his words. He spoke. And so when the enemy is attacking your mind, when the enemy is coming after you, when he's bringing turmoil and unrest, you know what we do? Is we open up our mouth and we sing songs of joy. And we sing songs of praise. And we sing songs about our identity. And we quote the word of God. That's how you slip back into rest. Does that make sense? That's how you move back into rest when the enemy is trying to yank you out of rest. My final scriptures. Hebrews chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Not fallen short of salvation, fallen short of rest. See, some people can read that go, see there, brother, you've fallen short. No, fallen short of rest. The context is rest. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, not to us. We've got the message of rest because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. And then the final ones, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would have not spoken later about another day. He says, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works. Well, underline that in your heart today. They also rest from their works just as God did from His. Friends, the enemy's strategy is to bring drama into our lives and just yank us right out of the rest that Jesus said is already ours, that God has already given us. Our rest is in Christ. He is our Sabbath rest in Jesus' name. Father, I want to thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Father, what a great truth. What a simple truth, but what a great truth. That when drama tries to abound, we can say grace does much more abound in Jesus' name. And Father, I want to thank you that because we understand our identity and because we understand the covenant, we don't have to keep licking stamps. They've already been licked in Jesus' name. Father, you have brought us out of that old covenant mentality and you have placed us in Jesus Christ, our Sabbath rest. And Daddy, I want to thank you. It's there where I can truly rest. That doesn't mean take life off, eat, drink, and be merry. It means I can rest in my heart in Jesus' name. All my fear is gone. We sang the song, I am fearless, Father, in Jesus' name. Father, we can say to the winds and the waves, do you remember his name? Then listen to the word of the Lord. So, Daddy, I want to thank you in Jesus' name as we celebrate your goodness. Amen.